This is not the media. This is hell. And on yet another abbreviated, eviscerated one-hour live broadcast here on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston streaming live right now and podcast in its entirety later at thisishell.com. Well, first, a warning. If you are proud to call yourself a Republican or a Democrat, you might not be too crazy about today's show. But as Zach N. posted on social media yesterday, when is a self-described Republican or Democrat ever liked this is hell which is a good point we pride ourselves in being objectively disgusted by both the major political parties in the united states and thoroughly disappointed in their lack of political imagination with that said manufacturing dissent since 1996 this is hell and this week in new york city most recently and across the united states in places like port portland oregon republicans are supporting violent white nationalist criminals who are openly committing violence against people who oppose Donald Trump. And they're doing it with impunity as the police do nothing. Well, except arrest the victims of the fascist violence. Meanwhile, in Milwaukee, we learn why Wisconsin really didn't vote for Hillary Clinton in 2016. And it wasn't voter suppression of the African-American community. Nope. It was more like the party's and Hillary's self-suppression of any calls for an end to systemic racism, which makes you wonder why liberals in the media are so focused on luring suburban white voters back into the fold, instead of rallying the voters who actually caused Hillary to lose the presidency, and those would be the disaffected African-American, formerly Democratic Party base. Our first guest today is freelance journalist Brendan O'Connor, who wrote this week's article at The Baffler, Boys to Men, with the GOP stamp of approval, the Proud Boys go mainstream. You may have heard about last week's violence outside a prestigious Manhattan Republican club committed by a violent right-wing group, uh, right-wing gang, whose founder, also a co-founder of Vice, not as in sin, but as in the media outlet, was inside the club giving a speech to Republicans. That's right, mainstream elite Republican organizations are now inviting founders of violent gangs who attack people whose political opinions they don't share or whose race, religion, sex, or gender identity they don't like to speak to their members. The Republican the Republicans are normalizing political violence, even celebrating it, and it's only a matter of time before Trump supports his new brown shirts. We'll find out just how scary it's getting for people who oppose Trump when we hear from Brendan, who writes about fascism, neoliberalism, and white supremacy. Brendan was on staff at Gawker, Jezebel, and Gizmodo's digital investigations team, the Special Projects Desk. You can also find Brennan's work at The New Yorker, New York Times Magazine, Deadspin, The Nation, and The Verge. After we freak out about violence being endorsed by Republicans and supported by their pals and police departments across the country, yeah, it's really scary. We'll talk to public policy attorney, activist, and writer Malika Jabali, who will be speaking to us live from Brooklyn about her current affairs story, The Color of Economic Anxiety. Is the collapse of Democratic fortunes due to economic anxiety? Of course. Just ask black Milwaukeeans. We've heard so many reasons for Hillary Clinton losing Wisconsin, a state that had voted for uh, Democrats for president for decades, white working class support for Trump, black voter suppression by the Republican government of Scott Walker, Hillary not going to Wisconsin at all followed her, uh, following her party's nomination as its presidential candidate. We've heard all the stories. 
okay, Hillary not visiting probably did have something to do with it. But the bigger issue is the Democratic Party is no longer offering anything to its African-American base, and they've either quit voting for you or quit voting altogether, believing that American democracy simply does not work for black people. The Democrats take blacks for granted, and blacks aren't taking it anymore. So, of course, liberals in the media are focusing what they can do to get white people to vote against Trump in 2020 instead of trying to figure out how they can reclaim their African-American base. We'll discover the real reasons for Hillary's 2016 presidential loss when we converse with Malaika, who has written about the fed up and marginalized at Essence, The Root, Glamour, and more. Follow Malaika on Instagram at Woker and Broker, a news and politics roundup for people born in the 80s and 90s who are more woke and more broke than their parents' generation. All that stuff plus listener feedback. We want to thank listeners for sharing This Is Hell online as well as thank those who supported This Is Hell in the past week. There's a couple of ways you can support This Is Hell. You can simply go to thisishell.com and click on support where we have all the This Is Hell swag available. Or you can subscribe to our weekly podcast exclusively for our patrons on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Go to patreon.com slash this is hell. Sign up now to get our weekly podcast only for subscribers on this week's Patreon podcast. We continue our ongoing monthly Patreon only series and oral history of the Iraq war as it happened here live on this is hell. We are now up to March 25th, 2006, about three years after the invasion of Iraq, when we spoke with Beth Piles of the Christian Peacemaker teams. Beth gave us her eyewitness account of what she had recently seen in Iraq, where she had spent four of the previous eight months. Beth had just returned from Iraq where she was working with Palestinians whom Beth said were being targeted by death squads in Iraq. But you can only hear the next chapter of our ongoing Patreon-only series and oral history of the Iraq war as it happened here live on This Is Hell if you subscribe to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Special thanks to everyone who joined us on Patreon this week including Bryant, Dylan, Dorian, Fergus, Julie, and Joel. We're now up to about 100 or 292 uh, subscribers on Patreon, and it sure would be nice if by the next time I come in here next week, we're up to 300. And you can join us, too, at patreon.com slash thisishell. And you want to do that this week, especially as the classic interview or interviews we'll be sharing will be the honor conversations we had a long time ago, 15 years ago maybe, with journalist and author Matt Taibbi, who once said of This Is Hell and me, I applaud Chuck's professionalism, his incisive wit, his keen sense of um, the moment. He was one of the most important social commentators on the American scene. I only wish I could remember appearing on his program. And he confirmed not remembering being on our show at an ACLU event a few years ago. But you can only hear our talks with Matt Tybee if you go to patreon.com slash thisishell. By the way, Jacob Hamburger, who has contributed to This Is Hell many times in the past, he posted an interview he did with Matt Tybee uh, at Jacobin, this week, where they talk about Noam Chomsky's seminal work, Manufacturing Consent. Uh, and Alex shared that interview on Facebook this week, so you can find it at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Speaking of Alex, producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. And speaking of Noam Chomsky, Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. Republicans are now openly fraternizing with violent white nationalist thugs who attack anyone that opposes Trump, and the police don't appear to be doing a damn thing about it. 
here to welcome us to our new era of open political violence supported by the Republican Party. Brendan O'Connor is a freelance journalist based in New York City who wrote this week's article at The Baffler, Boys to Men, with the GOP stamp of approval, The Proud Boys Go Mainstream. Welcome to This Is Hell, Brendan. Hey, Chuck, how are you? Good. Uh, you can follow Brendan on Twitter at underscore Grendan. That's G-R-E-N-D-A-N. And you're going to find out more about Brendan as well as all his writing at brendan-o'connor.com. At the website, uh, The Medium, this week, there is a story headlined, A Proud Boy Assaulted Me Because I Am a Muslim. The author writes, last Friday, October 12th, a group of Proud Boys in New York City came under scrutiny after the gang beat several people on the ground in a homophobic assault. After much reflection, I've decided to come out with my story about one of the suspects in the beating to provide context. I want to drive the point home. This was not an isolated incident, but instead falls into a pattern of violence fueled by Islamophobia, racism, and misogyny. I am always torn about reporting on stories like these because... While I believe informing the audience as to the level of violent hate that threatens people of all walks, but especially minorities every day, uh, I, I also don't want to give publicity to the groups that are perpetuating the violence, almost as if we ignore them, they'll go away, and that way they won't get the attention that they deserve or that they want. What do we risk by simply ignoring the Proud Boys? Will simply ignoring them make them go away any faster than they will if we report on them? <laughs> Uh, well, obviously, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I don't believe that. I wouldn't be doing what doing what I do if if, if I did. But right. I think the reason that I think that it is important to uh, to report on these groups, to apply scrutiny to these groups, is that I think um, you know, I think in 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 darkness they sort of uh, fester and grow, and I think there's a there's a, there's a wrong way to pay attention to what they are up to, and there's a right way, and the right way is to to put it in context, to apply historical perspectives to what they are doing, and to not take what they say um, on their own terms, to really kind of interrogate and unpack and compare what they say to with what they do. <clears throat> um, and I mean, I think that 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 incident that the the um the medium author the anonymous medium author spoke about um that really is part of that is part of this whole story so that 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 a, alleged assault took place after an anti sharia rally in new york city that was organized by a man who is now a member of the metropolitan republican club who was at the event on friday night uh, welcoming in the Proud Boys into the uh, halls of the New York State GOP. It, what happened was really amazing, and you write about the incident uh, reported in the medium, writing, quote, on Friday, again, that's October 12th, members of the Proud Boys assaulted leftist protesters outside the New York City's Metropolitan Republican Club, the state GOP's home base in the city and a center of Trumpism in Manhattan, following an appearance by their leader, Vice co-founder Gavin McInnes, and there's and here's how the Huffington Post's uh, Christopher Mathias, and you shared this article on Twitter, uh, reported on McInnes's appearance. Uh, Gavin McInnes, the founder of the violent neo-fascist gang The Proud Boys, has a perplexing message for the Republican Party last Friday. McInnes told a crowd inside the Metropolitan Republican Club ballroom, at the very least, people of the right, let us scum in. 
What's the point in McInnes trying to brand or market himself to the audience of the Metropolitan Republican Club as scum? What What's the message that he's trying to send there? Is, is it a dog whistle that I just can't hear? What's the message he's sending there? Um, I think that what, what McInnes is alluding to is I think that it's a, a tacit acknowledgement that like what the what the Proud Boys offer is a willingness to engage in political violence, in street violence, in support of a political program that the institutional conservatives, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's, it's the same political program, but they can't deploy those tactics uh, as openly. Um, and it's not only, you know, I mean, Gavin is pitching pitching himself and the Proud Boys as, you know, part of the right, part of the conservative movement. But the Metropolitan Republican Club, the 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 head, the head of the club himself in an interview with Gothamist said as much, said that Gavin McGinnis is part of the right and, and compared him to such luminaries as Tucker Carlson and Ann Coulter. Um, so this is, you know, this is this is part of a a wider a wider shift. And uh, you mentioned how it was reported that one of the people committing violence in the crowd yelled the Proud Boys slogan "F around and find out." What does that mean? Is the brand then the is the Proud Boy brand then we're scum and f around and find out because it sounds like they're overcompensating for something. <laughs> it's um. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, a big part of their, an enormous part of, of their recruiting strategy and their self-branding and their self-promotion is in this kind of, like, appealing to this, like, hyper-masculine um, imposition of oneself on um on others and, and, and of like just dominating people and space around you and the F around and F around and find out, um, is a, you know, as as a way to like hype themselves up and, and, uh, kind of mm, announce their willingness to, uh, you know, to, to find any excuse to beat people up. And as Matthias explains, let the scum in was a baffling thing to say, of course, because uh, McInnes was already in and he was already addressing the crowd. And he had been invited to speak at the club, a storied and stuffy mainstream conservative institution on Manhattan's Upper East Side. And you point out that over the past, uh, what, or, or actually this is uh, Christian Matthias again, over the past century, presidents, senators, governors, mayors have walked through its doors, including club members Teddy Roosevelt, Richard Nixon, Michael Bloomberg. So it's a very prestigious place. To what extent, then, has the Republican Party invited a violent group to be part of the mainstream Republican Party? I mean, I think that <clears throat> I think that this has been I think that this has been a, a long time coming, and I think that it's just out in the open now. Um, I think that that increasingly the uh, need to maintain the appearance of uh, of separation um is is eroding um and and there are like larger systemic reasons for that um or at least in my interpretation but I, yeah i i think 
I think this is, uh, I, I mean, I, I said in a tweet the other day, like, when when Trump at the rally in Missoula was praising uh, Greg Gianforte for his assault on the Guardian reporter, um, like, it's, I, I really feel like it's, it, it's only a matter of time before Trump himself is explicitly endorsing the Proud Boys and, and, and um, you know, I, I will be... I, I, I won't be shocked when that happens. Yeah, you tweeted, uh, the clock is counting down until Trump explicitly endorses the Proud Boys, and that's scary. How close are we getting to a point where Trump is openly supporting a group dedicated to violence against targeted minorities? Because that sounds a lot like the Nazi brown shirts whose violence helped Hitler rise to power beginning in the 1920s. Is Trump real close to having his own voluntary brown shirts committing violence against those who oppose him? Oh, I mean, he he already does, <laughs> but it's just a matter of whether or not he uh, knows that he does or cares to cares to acknowledge that that he does. But that's functionally what is what is happening. Uh, has the president have any Republicans made any statements on the Proud Boys violence last week, either supporting or opposing their tactics? Has there been any acknowledgement uh, from mainstream Republicans or the Republican Party in general about the violence on October 12th? Um, not not to my knowledge. I mean, the local the local party through the apparatus of, of the Metropolitan Republican Club um, has has doubled down um that they they uh last that last i checked they they still are uh fronting like this was a <laughs> this was a perfectly normal and fine thing to do to invite gavin mcginnis to reenact the uh assass- assassination of a socialist politician um and as for like as as for officials higher up in the party apparatus, um, I don't I don't know that any of any of them have come out one way or another. I mean the the media apparatus in 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 Fox News um, is sort of taking the same line as as the uh, Metropolitan Republican Club that that these are uh, you know that these were people just engaged in their constitutional right to free speech and uh, the leftist mob. Um, brought this upon themselves. Yeah, the at the meeting, it seemed like they were celebrating violence. Uh, tell people what the, uh, can you uh, explain what they were actually celebrating? What was the event that McInnes was celebrating and saying was a great event, a, a very violent event that they were celebrating at the Republican Club? Yeah, he, he called it uh, in, inspirational. Um, so Friday was the or last Friday was the 58th anniversary of the assassination of the leader of the Japanese Socialist Party on live television. Um, his, his assassin was a uh, a young ultranationalist who um, made his way on onto the set of a television show where where the um, where the socialist leader was was giving an interview and uh, stabbed him with a katana uh, and and he died and and uh, that basically led to a split in the socialist in the Japanese socialist party and um, uh, was an enormous, an enormous setback for for the left in in that country in terms of splits over how how to respond to this act of violence, um, and so 
last Friday, Gavin and uh, his one of his employees, um, who also happen, who happened to be of Japanese descent, um, reenacted this uh, this murder. Um, and and as I said, Gavin described it as a as a uh, as an inspiring event. And then at the at the club itself, he his his uh, his message to the audience, which included proud boys, racist skinheads, and rank and file Republicans, was that you know you you can't allow evil to to grow. I think is 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 what he said. The implication being that um, ideological opponents, uh, including but not limited to the anti-capitalist left, need to be purged, essentially, by any means necessary. And a spokesperson for the Metropolitan Club said, we would never invite anyone who would incite violence. So they're celebrating violence. They're not inciting violence. Is there any indication that McInnes's speech at the Metropolitan Club actually led directly to violence? Because the New York Times reported, the police said the violence started after one of the leftist protesters threw a bottle at the Proud Boys, who had with them members of far-right groups like the 211 Boot Boys and Battalion 49. So did the violence start because McKinnis rallied and incited it in the Republican club, or did it start because a member of Antifa threw a bottle at one of the members of the fascist group? I mean, I think that's, I think that's a, a matter of... <clears throat> of uh a rather of in- interpretation i mean the the looking at it linearly um you know gavin and the proud boys and all these others were there they celebrated this act of historical violence and offered a message of uh that that you know that we should take this as inspiration for future action um and then according yeah according to the according to the police uh somebody outside threw a bottle um and i mean where where to where to lay the blame for then what followed um is a matter of uh i think it's a matter of, of political interpretation there was a great deal of hate speech outside of the Republican club. These people are clearly, uh, you know, homophobic. They're clearly Islamophobic. They're clearly very racist, misogynist people who are starting violence, who are acting in a criminal way. Uh, how did the New York Police Department react to this? And more importantly, as we know, they didn't really react to this. What has been the fallout? I believe that they said that they were going to arrest 12 people they found on surveillance camera, but didn't arrest anybody except for two protesters at the time of the skirmish. So what is the state right now with the New York Police Department? Are they sitting around and, and, and doing absolutely nothing while white criminals are committing violent acts on the street of Manhattan? Yeah, so the the immediate response was was indeed to to do nothing other than uh, arrest anti-racist protesters at the behest of uh, of 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 a proud boy who who claimed to have been um, claimed to have been uh, assaulted and robbed, and he went to the cops and pointed out three protesters, and they arrested those protesters. Uh, while then minutes later, 
the uh, NYPD basically watched as a dozen or more Proud Boys and skinheads jumped and a gang beat down uh, three other protesters who were caught um, caught on their own away from the larger the larger group. Um, subsequently, what has happened is that the is that Democratic politicians in the city and the state, including Governor Cuomo, um, and then and then also many of the uh, many members of the New York City Council, have issued repeated and adamant demands for a more uh, more aggressive response from the NYPD, and have specifically condemned the actions of the strategic response group or um which was the which is a a a a, a, uh, a unit of the NYPD that is frequently in charge of um of protests in the city and has its own problematic history uh and so there have been there've been public demands from public officials for a an extensive uh investigation and then a public report on the NYPD's lack of response on last Friday night. Um, we will see what comes of that. I know that there are there are lots of people that they want to talk to who don't want to talk to the police because they don't trust the police to be able to hold themselves accountable. Um, and I think that just looking at the pattern of facts, it's clear that left to their own devices, the NYPD wouldn't have wouldn't have arrested any of them um that that this is only coming that these arrests there's there's been two arrests so far of uh of of proud boys that that the cops have identified as particip- allegedly I should say participating in these assaults um I think there's every reason to believe that 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 wouldn't have happened were it not for this public outcry from uh democratic officials in the city and you write how uh, the Proud Boys even received sympathetic media coverage from Fox News while actively recruiting new members, not only from the alt-right, but from racist skinhead scenes across the country. So you have uh, the government's propaganda channel. You have, the, you have Fox News, which used to be only the right wing's propaganda channel, is now praising those committing violence against people who voice political pin- opinions they oppose. Those people are then committing violent acts, and they are not being, and they're doing it with impunity as the police just watch. That's starting to sound really close to fascism, state-run media promoting violence against their opponents with brown shirts and police collaborating. How close are we to getting to be pretty much resembling a fascist state? Um, I think that it. I think that it would be. Uh, I think that it would be naive to imagine that this was not a looming possibility. Um, I don't think that we are. I mean, I'm I'm not a historian, so this is I, I and I'm not a political theorist, so I think that this is a question better put to those kinds of experts. From but from from my reading of those folks and from my understanding of what's going on right now, um, I think that I think that that is. There's every, there's every reason to believe that that is that is one that is one possible future. 
um, and that it that it may not even be too far away. I don't think that a a fascist state in 21st century uh, United States will be a direct one to one parallel to the fascist states of of Italy or Germany in the early 20th century. I think that it will look very different. Um, but just in terms of how these structural uh, entities are, are in, in the party and the media and um, street organizations are coming into alignment, um, I think that there's a lot to worry about. Journalist Brendan O'Connor has been speaking to us live from New York City. Brendan wrote this week's article at The Baffler, Boys to Men, with a GOP stamp of approval, The Proud Boys Go Mainstream. You can follow Brendan on Twitter at underscore Grendan. That's G-R-E-N-D-A-N. You can find out more about Brendan as well as all of his writing at his website, brendan-oconnor.com. One last question for you, Brendan. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question you might hate to answer, we might hate to ask, or our audience is going to hate your response. So (laughs) was and is Antifa correct? That is... Protesters are going to need protection from violent fascist groups, and if necessary, Antifa will provide that protection even if it means engaging in violence because there is a lot of controversy over the uh, tactics of Antifa at Charlottesville in August of 2017. So in the end, do you think that, especially with what we're seeing with the Proud Boys, Antifa has been proven to be correct? Uh, y- yes, basically. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, but I mean... That's a yes or no question. Then my answer is yes. <laughs> I shouldn't have asked a yes or no question. That was my big problem there. So, uh, <laughs> w- so I guess let me just uh, expand on it just a little bit then. So, uh, why do you think, or um, why do you think so many people thought Antifa was wrong? That that was the wrong thing to do. Um, I think that. Why do we think that so many people thought that they were wrong? Well, I mean, this is now we're getting into like. Uh, like theories of the state and like the like the state's monopoly on violence, um, and I think that what what members of uh, anti-fascist organizations across the country have recognized, not just in the past few years, but for decades in the United States and and in other countries where anti-fascist movements have arisen, um, is that part of the experience of the late 20th century and early 21st century is that the state is abdicating its monopoly on violence and that there are reactionaries and um, far-right ideologues who engage in violence in support of that political program. Um, And so then the question becomes, do you just sit there and take it? Uh, or do you defend your community? Um, and I think that most people, when framed in those terms, kind of abstracted from the, uh, abstracted from the sort of wider, like historical and political context, like put, like when considering the question of like, do you like, do you stand up to a bully? Um, yeah, of course you do. Uh, so I, I, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, 
I think that a lot of the people who have been so maligned in mainstream media and by uh, by liberals and Democrats and progressives, um, I think that they were much more farsighted than than a lot of than a lot of people um, gave them credit for. Brendan, I really appreciate you being on the show. I'm going to continue following your writing on a regular basis because this is really fascinating stuff. We've been talking uh, to some people about the far right and the violent far right on our show, but you've been uh, writing about this on a very regular basis. So we'll be getting in contact with you again in the future to have you back on. I really appreciate you being on This Is Hell this week. Thank you. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I asked were written while I was incredibly high. This is hell. The real reason Hillary Clinton lost Wisconsin to Donald Trump the 2016 presidential election is because the Clintons and the Democratic Party lost African-American voter support. African-Americans had enough and grew tired of being taken for granted as Democratic Party supporters, especially after Clinton's new Democrats ushered in mass incarceration of blacks, destroyed African-American safety net, throwing record numbers into extreme poverty and implementing policies that would directly lead to the financial crisis of 2008, which, like all American financial crises, disproportionately affected blacks. We'll learn why African-Americans really didn't vote for Hillary when we talk in a few minutes to public policy attorney, activist, and writer Malik. Jabali, who wrote the current affairs story, The Color of Economic Anxiety. Is the collapse of Democratic Party fortunes due to economic anxiety? Of course. Just ask black Milwaukeeans. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. This week's hangover cure is that Icelandic favorite, Sviosulta. According to an article at Australia's news site, SBS.com, headlined, Here's How the World Cures Its Hangovers with Feud, Feud, Feud. Iceland one-ups Mongolia's favorite hangover cure, the Mongolian Mary, a sheep-eye cocktail. Instead, Iceland's Fjulsulta is a sheep's head terrine. What it lacks in appeal, it makes up for in nutrients. The bone broth and protein from the sheep's head is perfect for a hangover, provided you can keep it down. Mongolian Marys now sound quite good in comparison. That makes this week's hangover cure that Icelandic favorite, Svilsulta, or sheep's head terrine. It's time for listener feedback. Our first email to Chuck at This Is Hell is from James, who writes... Hi, Chuck. I came across your podcast a few nights ago, and I've been enjoying it a lot. I'm head of growth for a leading full-service podcasting agency, and I have an idea for collaboration. What if we take over This Is Hell podcast production, all the editing, all the show notes, and all of your scheduling, too? We'll offer you a serious discount for our regular services if we get to include a link to our agency in your show notes. We've done a few collaborations like this in the past, and it's been beneficial for both sides. Does that sound like something you would be interested in? If so, we could hop on the phone. Would love your thoughts, James. No, James, you would not love to hear my thoughts, and if I was, had any confidence whatsoever in the seven-second delay here at the station, I would share those thoughts with you. I'd share my honest thoughts on your idea of us paying you to do our show. So, James, Vatafenskul, or whatever F.U. is in Roma, this is hell. 
And the best way for you to get the word out about This Is Hell is to share This Is Hell. We want to thank the people who shared This Is Hell this week. Julie, Nick, Gorilla, Gramophonics, Laura, and all the people who shared our show. Thanks to all of you for sharing This Is Hell. And uh, we really appreciate your support in doing so. If you want to hear your name read on air and simultaneously spread the good word about the evil content of This Is Hell, all you have to do is share This Is Hell. Live from the rotting corpse that is broadcast radio, This Is Hell. It wasn't voter suppression that kept African-Americans from voting for Hillary Clinton, keeping her from becoming president. Nope. It was suppression by the Democrats of any discussion of systemic racism and the ways to end it. Here to tell us how Hillary lost Wisconsin and how the Democratic Party has lost African-Americans. Live from Brooklyn, public policy attorney, activist, and writer Malika Jabali wrote the current affairs story, The Color of Economic Anxiety. Welcome to This Is Hell, Malika. Thanks Hi. for having me. Thank you for being on our show. You can follow Malika on Instagram at Woker and Broker, a news and politics roundup for people born in the 80s and 90s who are more woke and more broke than their parents' generation. You can also uh, follow Malaika on Twitter at Malaika Jabali, M-A-L-A-I-K-A-J-A-B-A-L-I. You write about uh, how, though hollowed out and lifeless, the shell of the former A.O. Smith Milwaukee Works headquarters on North 27th Street in West Hopkins was still magnificent. This is in Milwaukee. But the grand two-story brick structure, wide as half a city block and featuring the odd boarded-up window, felt like a tombstone. Here lies the dream of the Great Migration, it read. The dream of the Great Migration, as near as I can tell, was the American dream in general. That is the ideal that every uh, U.S. citizen should have an equal opportunity to achieve success and prosperity through hard work, uh, determination, and initiative. If the Great Migration lies buried in an old lot that used to house a factory in Milwaukee, in your opinion, to what extent is the American dream dead and buried for African Americans? Well, to be frank, I don't think we've ever realized that dream. Even Langston Hughes talked about this in the early years of the Great Migration through um, his poetry. And uh, you listen to A Raisin in the Sun. He's speaking on these dreams that are deferred. Uh, Lorraine Hansberry, she also talks about this in her adaptation of this poem or her kind of materialization of that poem through her her play, A Raisin in the Sun. So I don't think for African-Americans that we've ever realized that dream. We have um, seen moments in our history where we have come close, at least in terms of some economic equality. We don't see that today in Wisconsin. The economic, the socioeconomic indicators for Black people are adverse in practically every capacity. In the 1970s, Black men had, you know, a a job rate of about 70%, which is different than, you know, unemployment or an employment rate. It counts people who aren't in the kind of the unemployment system. They're not going through the standard means of looking for employment. About 70% of Black men had manufacturing jobs in Milwaukee. Today, the jobless rate in Milwaukee is about 50%. So, yeah, we have not realized that yet. Uh, you write that few outsiders seem to realize that Milwaukee is substantially black and many of its black residents who make up 40 percent of the city have been simmering in their frustrations for decades. Those frustrations came to a head in 2016 after police killed 23-year-old uh, Seville Smith when residents set fire to Milwaukee's Sherman Park neighborhood. 
I'm trying to figure out what impact that view of Milwaukee as a predominantly white city might have on its residents. Because we were talking with journalist Rachel Cohen last week about our racial misconceptions of suburbs and the impact that has on housing policies in the United States. How do our racial misconceptions about Milwaukee affect Milwaukee's residents and in particular its African-American citizens? That's a really good question. I think what it does is a couple of things. One, it allows Republicans to decimate the population, uh, decimate the economic opportunities of people across race. And then when it comes to the Democratic response, it gives them a way to just blame Republican policy instead of talk about how they have failed to mitigate those policies across race. So it ends up being a dichotomy setup where you're thinking about working class and black people almost mutually exclusively. And it allows you to escape the fact that these need to be an intersectional analysis. It allows you to escape the fact that we need to talk about class and race. And so the Democrats have gotten off on talking about Republican boogeyman um, because they're not considering the multitude of black people who live in the city. To be clear, of course, Wisconsin only has about a 10% Black population, but the city of Milwaukee is about 40% Black. And I think most people don't recognize that. Um, I'm based in Brooklyn, but this morning I'm I'm in Los Angeles. <laughs> so it's about 7.35 my time. And, you know, whether you're in Brooklyn or in, you're, you're in LA, you really don't think of Milwaukee as a Black city. Um, I don't know if you could still call it a Black city, but it still is, you know, a, a big plurality of Black people there. So I think, again, it just allows Democrats to avoid this intersectionality. Right. And again, I totally forgot that you were on the West Coast this morning. So thank you for getting up early. Uh, You write that that, uh, uh, Hillary Clinton didn't lose Wisconsin because of voter suppression, which is one of the stories we always hear. You write, even accounting for the thousands of potential voters who were likely harmed by Wisconsin's incessant suppression tactics, studies show that voter suppression was among the least important factors affecting black turnout in Wisconsin. So Wisconsin did experience some voter suppression, but it isn't the single reason Trump won Wisconsin. But that's the story I've been hearing since November 2016. That is the reason Trump won Wisconsin. The Republicans stole the election because uh, they've suppressed the vote, especially in African-American communities. What do those within the Democratic Party and their supporters, even within the liberal media, miss in their understanding of what happened in November 2016 when they believe Trump won Wisconsin because of voter suppression? What are they distracted from recognizing? Well, I'm going to take a step back and just to acknowledge um, what's happening in Georgia right now, because I'm a black woman from the South, where Jim Crow segregation affected uh, black electoral politics, affected our, our um, being able to opt into the system for decades. And acknowledge that suppression will always be a factor, I think, as long as we have black people living and breathing and voting in this country. Uh, We're seeing it right now with Brian Kemp, who's attempting to suppress the black vote in Georgia. We saw it through uh, both Bush's elections. So I think it's important to acknowledge where it clearly exists, where it is happening. And I think it's also important to acknowledge when we might be having voter oppression. I think in Wisconsin in 2016, what Democrats miss is the fact that a lot of Black voters feel oppressed. And so no matter how much you may tell them that voting 
to stop Trump is the thing to do, that a vote uh, at home, staying at home is a vote for Trump, is adversely going to affect the future of this country. I think it loses the fact that a lot of people felt that they already lost. And that's something that I talk about in the piece. People have been experiencing a decimation of economic opportunity, Black people in particular in Milwaukee for the last 40 years, uh, 4-0 if I wasn't clear. So 40 years since a lot of these companies moved, A.O. Smith, they hauled off to uh, the suburbs of Milwaukee. They also went to Mexico and China and sold off their operations. So you're missing the effects of capitalism, which is really fundamentally what this piece is about. You're, you're missing the failure of capitalism if you only want to talk about the maybe one or two or three percent of people who might have had to wait longer at the polls in Milwaukee or who couldn't find their, their polling place, which is very important. That one or 2% can represent thousands of voters. So I definitely never want to discount that. We can't under um, estimate that, but we also shouldn't overestimate it. And that is what happened in Wisconsin. And if our listeners want to read more about what's happening with voter disenfranchisement, not just in uh, Georgia, but also in Indiana, our correspondent Greg Palast has been writing a lot about it. And you can find uh, all of his work at gregpalast.com. So you went to Milwaukee last fall to talk to African-American residents in an attempt to find out why they didn't vote for Hillary. And you described the events that took place in the north side of Milwaukee neighborhood of Sherman Park in August of 2016, when police officer Dominique Hagen Brown killed Silville Smith, keeping in mind the events in Sherman Park happened only two months prior to the presidential election. You write that in the aftermath of, of the killing, the neighborhood was burning. The arson wasn't just the climax of mourning for Silville's death. It was also about the police killings of Dontre Hamilton and Derek Williams, whose deaths were still a recent memory. It was about the folks who were out of work and with few legitimate employment options and the decades of legalized police terrorism that racked residents since the earliest years of black migrants seeking refuge in Milwaukee from the Jim Crow South. Why does police violence lead people to protest joblessness or a lack of options of work. You were mentioning uh, the intersectionality of these issues earlier. How do protesters mm-hmm. see these two things connected, police violence and economic mm-hmm. opportunities? That's a really interesting question that I actually have not really thought about, but I'll attempt to broach it. I think it is a, a visceral reaction. I think the police state and um, protecting these liberal, um, neoliberal corporate interests are intertwined. If you look at where a lot of this arson happens, it happens to to property. So when people feel kind of this, this physical violence, there's a visceral reaction to what is happening around them and uh, what they see every day. And what they see every day is a factory that is shuttered. They see scores of rows of housing that has been uh, decimated by the Great Recession, homes that have been boarded up and abandoned. About 50 years ago, just referring to the, the years of, of police uh, violence that has affected Black people in Milwaukee, 
1967, there was a huge civil unrest. And for similar reasons, one of those reasons was the lack of adequate housing for Black people. Milwaukee then and now has been one of the most segregated cities in America. Some say it's the most segregated city in America today. And if you go to the street on MLK in Milwaukee right now, where those buildings were burnt out, they're still burnt out. The city has not even touched them. I I couldn't believe it. I was driving around with Wendell Harris. He's a uh, supervisor in, in the board of the school board in Milwaukee. And I was like, are you sure that this is, it's the same building from 67. They haven't done anything. It's like, yeah, yeah, they, they haven't touched it. So there's just this visceral reaction, I believe, to seeing, you know, the economic oppression around you and, and the physical violence that's been impressed upon you. You know, and I was going to ask you how obvious it was to you that Milwaukee, Wisconsin has become the worst place to live for African-Americans in the entire country. How in plain view is it that Milwaukee, Wisconsin has become the worst place to live for African-Americans in the entire United States? It's so as if, you know, going there, what it looks like. Is that Yes, but also, but also I'm just kind of curious if it's kind of like an elephant in the room situation where everybody knows that this kind of segregation and this discrimination is happening within Milwaukee, but at the same time, nobody is doing anything about it. So I was kind of wondering how obvious it was, and then at the same time, how much it was actually being addressed, how much it had become a political issue that everybody was discussing. Mm-hmm. I think for most factions, it's not that obvious. I didn't realize the the depth of black history and the breadth of black history in Milwaukee until I started digging and reporting on the piece. I think there are a number of people who have called this out early on. I was reading an article uh, in dollars and cents. It's an independent media outlet that was touching on the same exact issues that I was talking about, but three years prior in 2015. So I think people who are aware of politics in Wisconsin and they've seen what Scott Walker and years of kind of this conservative movement has done to eradicate the progressivism in Wisconsin. I think they are familiar with it, but I think the majority of the country isn't. And I think that is what was Hillary Clinton's downfall, because if you recall, she did not step foot in Wisconsin once as a Democratic nominee. And mind you, this was about three months, um, a little less than three months after civil unrest in August 2016. And she had an election in November of 2016. So if she was aware of this, I would hope that she would have visited the state and she did not at all as a nominee. So I don't really know if people were aware of it. Um, When you go, you see it. I think the the biggest, uh, what was most jarring to me was just how, it felt like like a desert town. Like you go through the wild, wild west and you know, the cowboys have gone through and they've killed off the Indians. That's kind of what it reminded me of. It was uh, pretty deserted. And the people who, at least in, in certain pockets, 53206, for instance, where the, there's the highest black male incarceration in the country. Going through, the only folks that I kind of saw um, milling around occasionally were younger black men who you would think would either be at work or at school kind of wandering and just looking a little bit aimless. Um, But there wasn't a lot of economic activity whatsoever. And that was very jarring to me. 
You quote an alderman, Khalif Rainey of Milwaukee, reflecting on the Obama administration, and you describe as the onslaught, he describes the onslaught of police brutality and uprisings the country had witnessed. Rainey tells you, we had Baltimore, we had Charlotte, we had Milwaukee. I wonder, how does that factor into a community's confidence in having an African-American president if during the tenure, when we had one, we've seen some of the most atrocious murders by police officers of unarmed black men? We've seen the decline in African-American wealth. Did we lose confidence in the power or the ability of getting things done by a president? Were we coming off a hangover or fatigue? Do we still have confidence in democracy at all? Did Obama, instead of inspiring African-Americans, leading them to believe in the power of democracy, actually lead to a loss of faith in democracy? Did Obama not doing enough for African-Americans in office lead African-Americans to lose faith in American democracy? I think if you talk to people there, that that is the major theme that comes up. But to take it a step back, I think this is indicative of uh, an imperialist government, a capitalist government generally. So whoever you have as president, whether it's the first woman president, if it's the first, you know, Asian American president, if it's the first black president, I think you're going to have the same outcome in terms of people being disillusioned. Because I don't think any president in America is going to be able to deliver the kinds of services and justice and profound, you know, economic transformation revolution that we need in an executive office. I think America needs to, its economic and political system needs to be overhauled, and one person cannot do that. The types of policies that we need in places like Wisconsin is not going to be done by just one president. Um, So, you know, that's just kind of the macro picture. But on a smaller level, yes, absolutely. I think that is what people feel. That is what they say. And um, we we do have a a, a job to do, I think, in terms of figuring out what the next steps are for people to get that sense of, of hope and to actually experience it. You quote Fred Royal, the president of Milwaukee's NAACP chapter, saying there were no distinct issues that Hillary Clinton ran on that were associated with black voter turnout. What issues could Hillary Clinton have promoted that may have brought more black voters to the polls in Milwaukee back in 2016? What did she ignore and why did she seem to focus so much on black identity politics rather than on economic issues? One, I think, and this isn't necessarily an economic issue, but in a way, in a perverse way, it has become one. Uh, A sociologist, Bruce Western, says that Wisconsin has essentially replaced a jobs policy, a a substantive economic policy, with a criminal justice policy. So the number of Black men who who had jobs, who were employed uh, through the 1970s, has basically been replaced by the same amount of black men who are in jail. As I might have mentioned, about 50% of black men in the state have gone through the criminal justice system. They've been involved in some level of incarceration at some point. So a very clear one was the fact that she promoted the, uh, the crime bill throughout the 90s. And instead of really addressing that, which is what Fred Royal refers to, instead of addressing her failures there, she dismissed some of that critique. 
Um, she got confrontational and defensive when, when young black activists would ask her about these questions. So if you can find a way to create economic policies that can replace the criminal justice system, that would have been a very clear one. Today, we're talking about things like a job guarantee, a universal basic income, the things that allowed you know, Bernie Sanders to get his highest black support in Wisconsin. He got 31% of the black vote in the primary. That's the highest anywhere else in the country. I think that means something. So look at the policies that he was advocating for. If you look at the number of foreclosures um, and the abandoned homes that have taken over uh, the core of you know some of Milwaukee's black neighborhoods, you could talk about the housing crisis. You could talk about the Great Recession. There are so many different avenues to be able to intersect race and class, and Hillary Clinton did not do it. And what's also disturbing is the fact that she was accepting private prison money, uh, the second most after Mark Rubio, after Marco Rubio. Come on, if you're a Democratic president or presidential nominee, and you're getting almost as much private prison money as Marco Rubio, something is a problem. And the only way that you you return those funds is when people call you out just months before you go, you're going on the campaign trail. Something is not right there. And I think people recognize that. There was an article in, I think, around February or March of 2016 at The Nation by the author of The New Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander, and it was headlined, Hillary Clinton Doesn't Deserve the Black Vote. Alexander argued, as you were just pointing out, that the 1994 crime omnibus bill that led to mass incarceration, the 1996 welfare reform uh, bill, which led to increased extreme poverty for more and more African-Americans, were reasons to not vote for Hillary Clinton. But there was also an article around the same time in the Washington Post by Danielle Kurtzleben, and she wrote that the Clinton years were also known for a booming economy. During that time, the median uh, household income in African-American households grew by 25%, twice as fast as it did for all households nationwide. In addition, African-American unemployment plummeted from 14.1% to 8.2%. Of course, the unemployment rate also fell for other groups. And the administration touted its record of boosting loans to my minorities. How much is the reason why Hillary Clinton or the Clinton's popularity in general has decreased amongst uh, the African-American electorate? How much is that because the ultimately temporary financial success of the 90s has now faded into the past while the long-term effects of Clinton's policies have revealed themselves? Is that why we have this reexamination, this reconsideration of the Clinton legacy, because, you know, whenever I would be critical of the Clintons on the show back in the 90s and the early 2000s, I would get emails from people saying, yeah, but they really helped out African-Americans. So is it is the is it all being reconsidered now? Because whatever economic success they had just ended up being temporary, but the other problems became permanent. Well, I'd push back on that in a couple of ways, one of them being that even in the 1990s, in these key swing states in the Rust Belt, there was still deindustrialization. So while there might have been greater unemployment in some pockets for Black Americans, you know, the unemployment rate is, is clearly a flawed system. And if we're looking at it nationally, yes, it was relatively strong for Black people, but where exactly did that happen? And so what this piece aims to get at is that Black voters, Black people, the Black working class, the Black middle class isn't a monolith. So in the South, you probably saw more 
of that economic growth. In the Midwest, however, things were declining pretty rapidly. So in the 1970s, that was kind of the last hurrah for Black people there in terms of economic growth. And then you had these neoliberal and conservative policies where you had NAFTA, you had um, some of these tax breaks and tax credits that were unraveling the economic fabric of the community in the Midwest, where a lot of Black people are. So we didn't really see the results of that um, maybe until, you know, a little bit later on, but the, the seeds were, were sowing even then, even with, you know, these, these stats that herald the, the Clintons as some, you know, great economic you know, advocates. Um, but to your other point, though, in terms of us kind of taking stock of that for where we did see that success, success I think, yes, absolutely, there is a kind of coming to terms with what the the crimes bill meant, what incarceration meant for, for Black men, and just how much that would affect uh, the socioeconomic lives of Black people throughout the country. I don't think people, I, I don't think a lot of people grappled with that. Some people did. Um, if you look at the historical record, you know, people assume that oh, all these Black people were for the crimes bill, and they knew that this was, um, you know, going to be a helpful thing for our community to get rid of violent crime. And no, uh, I know I'm going on a tangent a little bit, but I just think it's important to note just because that narrative has stuck so long, even in the night in 1995 and 1994, when this was happening, you had a number of black uh, clergymen, black leaders, even the NAACP saw this crime bill as dogmatic. Uh, and the NAACP is not a very, you know, radical institution. And they were saying this in the mid-90s. The Million Man March, which drew like million, about a million Black people from all over the country, was in response to the crime bill. I think the Million Man March was in 1996. A key impetus for that was to protest the crime bill. So even in the 90s, Black people did not uh, whole cloth embrace the Clintons. So this is so confusing to me. Okay, so your rank and file, your base, are African Americans who will vote for you. Your base are labor unions who will vote for you. And then the Democrats turn their back on both labor unions and African Americans when they get into the 1990s. You quote uh, Wendell Harris, as you were mentioning earlier, who's a member of the Milwaukee Public Schools Board and was an officer of the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists and a member of the union at the factory he worked in from the 1960s and the 1990s, the A.O. Smith Company. Harris says of Bill Clinton, I didn't like him because he was the architect of the New Democrats. And in essence, they were supposed to be as close to the Republicans as possible to still be considered a Democrat. Did African Americans stop or start voting against the Clintons. They stopped voting for the Clintons in the Democratic Party because the Clintons turned the Democratic Democratic Party and their economic policy into the Republican Party's economic policy. Correct. I'm sorry, I missed the question. You said did they did they stop voting did for they them yeah, did they stop voting for the Clintons because the Clintons turned the Democratic Party into the Republican Party essentially when it came to economic policy? At what point are you talking about in the 90s or through in the 90s? No, in the 90s. I am not sure. I don't really know what the black voter turnout was looking like for Clinton then. I don't think it was particularly high. I'm I'm going back to some of the the census data that I looked at from the 60s just to see what these voter patterns were like. Okay. And I don't really recall what he 
what Bill Clinton received in black communities then. I think Wendell um, represents a lot of what people are thinking, but I don't know if they were necessarily acting on that. I think even today, there's a number of black people who still would support uh, Hillary Clinton. I think a lot of people, uh, there's a lot of black folks throughout the country who would still support Hillary Clinton because we tend to be a pretty pragmatic group. So I think even if you recognize their failures, like, well, what is the other option? Um, for black people in Wisconsin and throughout the Midwest, that option has been to stay home. For black people in the South and probably the East and West Coast, it's been, okay, kind of hold your nose, as we have been doing since we had the ability to vote. I don't think it, anyone's ever really truly uh, reflected the interests of black people or the poor across the board, uh, across race. So I think even if you disagree uh, politically, your voter behavior might um, might counter that because you feel like you have no other options. And you're also hearing that, you know, if you don't vote, you die. If you don't vote, you know, you're an evil su- a person supporting Trump. So we tend to be stuck in this catch-22. One last question for you. We have been speaking with Malika Jabali, who wrote The Current Affairs Story, The Color of Economic Anxiety. Malika has written about the fed up and marginalized at Essence, The Root, Glamour, and More. You can follow her on Instagram at Woker and Broker, a news and politics roundup for people born in the 1980s and 90s who are more woke and more broke than their parents' generation. (laughs) You can also follow Malika on Twitter at Malika Jabali, and you can find links directly to her and all of her work at our website, thisishell.com. The final question we have for each and every one of our guests, Malika, is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write, there is evidence that disillusionment is a far more significant factor than voter suppression in uh, deflating turnout among voters of color, even in states that did not introduce new voter ID laws after 2013 when the Supreme Court rolled back voter protections in Shelby County versus Holder. Black voter turnout dropped. Yet nearly two years after the presidential election, the common refrain is that the Democratic Party has to appeal to white swing voters if they want any chance of success in 2020. And you mentioned the media landscape with op-eds reporting and long-form essays attempting to uncover the economic anxieties of white Trump voters. Liberal pundits and policymakers assume that it's white working class voters, not black ones, whom they should lure back. Why are liberals, especially liberals in the media, ignoring black voters and their needs and instead focusing on white suburbanites? It's easy. I think it's the easy way out. It allows them to not confront the failure of capitalism because Democrats, for the most part, are capitalists. They believe in this system. If the the max that they might be interested in is reforming it, not revolutionizing it, not considering, you know, a socialist alternative. So it's easy to be able to frame these issues as very black and white. And they have been doing that uh, kind of pitting race and and uh, economic issues as diametrically opposed instead of intersectional because it's a it's an easy way to not address the failure of their own policy. Malika, I really, really, really appreciate you being on this week's show. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for getting up early on the West Coast. And when you're back on the East Coast, and this is a lot more uh, convenient for you, let's have you back on the show. Thank you so much. I had to throw that in there so I could get my bonus points being up <laughs> on the point. That's so why please have me back. That's why we're paying you that's why we're paying you time and a half today. So enjoy. <laughs> 
Thank you. All right. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Take care. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. This is hell office hours. Happen this and every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. The bar downstairs from the This Is Hell office and our news studio as well. Drop by the bar any Wednesday evening, hang out and chat me up, and I might give you a free book related to the show if you remind me. And I'll probably give you some This Is Hell subvertising stickers too. This Is Hell office hours, Wednesdays, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge. I want to thank the people who hung out with us this week. Thanks to producers Alex and Leo for hanging out with us at Carrie's this week. Also thanks to Anna, Rachel, Eric, Joel, our Rotten History writer and researcher, Ronaldo. Also thanks to Jordan, Elliot, Shelley, Pete, Rod, and everyone else who I might be forgetting. I got to say the best part of the evening was Pete ordering that heart, liver, and kidneys dish from the new Yemeni uh, place over at uh, Claremont and Devon. I mean, the company, your company was great, but that food was delicious. You too can talk me up and get free books and stickers at This Is Hell Office Hours every Wednesday, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Live from the good old U.S. of A., where capitalism is all our pimp, This Is Hell. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become This Is Hell's pimp, support This Is Hell at thisishell.com. There's now a couple ways you can support This Is Hell at thisishell.com slash support, or thisishell.com when you click on support. Go there and find out how. Thanks this week goes out to Adrienne for her amazing tithing-like commitment to This Is Hell. And thanks to Jefferson, who writes, uh, let's see, I would like a mug, please. It's for my landscaping co-worker. He has broken three ceramic mugs this past month, and I think the stainless steel mug from This Is Hell will solve that problem while remem- reminding him that, in fact, this is hell. I love you guys. Thanks to everybody who supported This Is Hell this week and in the coming days, weeks, months, and years of the Trump administration. Your support will be needed more than ever. To hear our latest installment of our Patreon-only podcast, go to patreon.com slash thisishell. Uh, Alex, do we know who's going to be on next week's show at all in any way? Nope. I didn't think so. You can rate This Is Hell on Facebook, and a whole bunch of people have so far. Just go to facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Give us a five-star rating, as 182 people already have done. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. We want to thank our guests, Malika Jabali and Brendan O'Connor, for being on this week's show. If you missed either one of those conversations, Brendan talked to us about the violence that happened last week with the Proud Boys in Manhattan and how the police did absolutely nothing about it and how the Republican Party is supporting it. And then we talked to Malika Jabali about the real reasons why the Clintons and the Democrats lost in 2016. She went back to Milwaukee and found out why. If you missed either of those conversations, we'll be posting them online at thisishell.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this morning's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.